working through our sermon series on the Psalms, Scale the Mountain. Uh, we are in Psalm 91 this morning. Um, we were in Psalm 90 last week. Again, we're not going one by one. Just this week it works out that it's 90 and then 91. So uh, we're not going one by one. Uh, but we will be in Psalm 91 here this morning. So uh, on our sabbatical this summer, uh, many of you know we traveled a bunch in different places, and uh, one of the trips that we went on, Whitney and I went uh, to Quebec um, to celebrate our 15-year anniversary and uh, to go back to the place that we honeymooned and actually the place that we started dating in Quebec on an architecture field trip. And what we wanted to do is actually recreate uh, the beginning of that architecture field trip by taking a train all the way up to Quebec City. Uh, so it was like a 17-hour train ride, super fun. It was awesome. But on the way home, uh, on the train ride, uh, I was approached by one of the folks uh, on, I can't remember which leg of the train ride we were on, uh, to, and asked if I would be willing to help in an emergency. And it was like, sure, you know, I've been in an emergency row before or whatever, it's totally fine. So she was like, okay, come with me. And it was like, oh, uh, this is a little bit more involved then. Uh, I, I think she also started speaking to me in French first. So it was like, okay, uh, English actually, because um, <laughs> I, I don't speak French. Uh, but it was significantly more involved than what I thought. She was like explaining me how to uh, open this door and kick this thing out and all this different things. I get back to the seat and I thought to myself, well, if we're in an emergency, we're going to be in trouble because I do not remember anything she just told me. <laughs> Probably we're going to be fine, right? In uh, 2020 uh, in Canada, the accident rate for trains was 2.7 accidents per million miles traveled and only 59 deaths total. So we were probably going to be totally fine. But what if I was asked to assist with safety in driving the train? Like actually driving it. Or safety uh, like helping in an emergency and the train was not just traveling through, you know, uh, the countryside of Canada, but traveling through a war zone. Probably I'd be a little bit more nervous and probably take that training a little bit more seriously, right? The level of threat really changes the way you think about emergency situations. Now, when we think about the phrase, the Lord is our refuge or our safety, what does that mean? What does it mean for the Lord to be our refuge? Is he our refuge in an emergency that's likely never to happen, like my assisting in an emergency situation on the train? Or is he more like a necessary refuge in the midst of great hardship? In the midst of very difficult things? How we answer that will greatly affect how we think about the safety that God provides for us. And that's really the theme of the psalm that we're going to be looking at here this morning. How is the Lord our refuge? Psalm 91, starting in verse 1, says this, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God. I trust Him. The reality is, 
That we are not in a situation in which we are on a comfortable train ride where we're not really going to need emergency assistance. We actually have a great need for safety. Not because there is no threat, but because there is very real threats. There is brokenness all around us. Even us who have had relatively easy lives experience incredible amounts of brokenness in our own lives and surrounding us. There is sin all around us. And there is sin and brokenness in us. The reality is, if you, uh, one of the things I've, uh, uh, I did a little bit over sabbatical is read some things from uh, early church uh, history, early church fathers and, and others. And in the beginning of a, the monastic movement, the desert fathers and mothers of the church went out of the city to get to a place in which they could find the Lord as their refuge. And one of the things you'll find when you read their writings is that they are dismayed when they get there and they find that sin and brokenness has traveled with them. Trying to get away from that, and it's traveled with them because it's actually in them. The challenge for us is not simply that there is brokenness and enemies and threats and difficulties and circumstances that leave us needing our basic things like food and shelter and also the things that are also necessary for living like friendship and rest and all of these other things. Not only are all of those things against us, but we carry with us our own levels of shame and brokenness, and our own sin. We carry with us our own evil desires. We're frustrated by the brokenness of the world around us, and then we catch ourselves thinking thoughts of hatred against other people. We are frustrated by the reality of the the sinfulness of the world, and then we are tempted to join in. And not just tempted to join in, we do join in. The reality is that we are in more like a war zone than a comfortable train ride. And the psalmist here says, in the midst of it all, the Lord is my refuge. He alone is my refuge. He is my place of safety. Now, the psalmist says this not just for himself, but for us as well. The psalmist goes on to say, For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrows that fly nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. 
Though a thousand fall at your side, though 10,000 are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Maybe as you heard that, you had the same thought I had when I first read it. Well, then why do bad things happen? I'm a little confused, psalmist. This is actually an anonymous psalm. We don't know who wrote it. There's no uh, subscription at the top of who, who wrote it. But why? you say all these things, but why do bad things still happen? Uh, my foot won't even step on a stone. You know how many times I step on Legos? That hurts, right? Why do bad things still happen? I follow Jesus. Why are bad things still happening? Why is this 11 and 12? Why does this not feel like my experience? They will hold you up with their hands, the angels, so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Well, I don't know that we have a direct answer for this. This is one of the great mysteries of the Scriptures. Why do bad things happen to people who follow God? Even things not related to our sin. We can get that one, right? We can get that where it's like, okay, I did something foolish. I didn't listen to you, Lord. I, you warned me, and then other people warned me, and I did it anyway, and I faced the consequences. We get that. But what about when we do the right thing and something bad still happens? What about when we heed the warning, when we've been reading our Bible, when we've been praying, when we've been serving, when we've been sacrificing, all of these things, and yet bad things still happen? What do we do with that? Well, again, I don't think we have a full answer, but I think part of the answer actually lies in the very tension that this psalm displays. It says that this won't hurt you. Your, your foot won't even get hurt on a stone. And yet, at the same time, it says that the Lord is our shelter. Why do you need a shelter? You only need a shelter during a storm, right? Look at these here. Sorry, I don't have a diagram today, but I am going to draw on this thing. So, so we're not going to do the full whiteboard, but I am going to draw on this thing. But look at these words here, right? Rescue. For he will rescue you from every trap. He will protect you. He will cover you. He will shelter you. His promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors. All of these are protective words, right? If I went to have this person on the train explain to me how to be uh, part of the emergency plan, right? Uh, the emergency exit help, and they handed me some armor, I would probably respond a little differently. I'd be like, ah, actually, no, I'm good. Find somebody else. 
If you get armor, you are expecting to get hit by something, right? You see, the tension of this psalm says that nothing will harm you, and yet also the Lord is your armor and protection and your shelter, and he will rescue you. I don't need to be rescued if there's no danger, right? So which is it? Yes, that's the answer, right? It's this tension between these two things. You see, I think we have a warped view of safety. You think, I, I think we have this idea we want safety far from danger. But the refuge of the Lord is in the midst of whatever danger. We are looking for a beach house, not a storm shelter. But what we need is a storm shelter. What we need is a storm shelter. And the reason we believe we want a beach house and not a storm shelter is because we fundamentally believe, oftentimes, that favorable circumstances equals God's favor. That when things are going well and you're at the beach house, God is for you. And when you're in the midst of a storm, God is against you. But I think what this psalm is trying to get us to see is that God is our shelter in the midst of the storm. Because you know what happens at a beach house? Hurricanes. Right? The reality is, we believe that we want beach house safety because we don't think it's hurricane season. But we're in a broken world. It is hurricane season all the time. And so when we want that beach house safety, you know how we try and get it? We distract ourselves of the real problems. How often, I mean, uh, okay, it probably doesn't happen for any of you, but just for me. When things are really hard, I'm like, you know what sounds really good? I've got this game of wingspan on my phone, and I'm going to play that. I'm going to watch some sports. I'm really going to get invested in this fantasy football team. I am going to distract myself with binging some television. Because things are hard. Or we take it a step up. I am frustrated and tired and I am hurting and I'm going to avoid all that by pursuing whatever pleasure I can get, however I can get it. The cheaper, the better. The way that it, if it doesn't cost me anything, it's even better. It's what we do. And then, on the flip side of that, we try to become super productive and get enough money to which we do not need to worry about any trouble. If we just have enough money, we won't have to worry about trouble. It's often why the greater concentrations of wealth move away from faith. It's just... Very hard, right? Like, it's hard to think that you need God if your daily life proves to you that you don't need God. Maybe, in fact, 
favorable circumstances in the world might not be God's favor, but God's disfavor. I don't think disfavor is a word, but it could be. Not always, for sure. But certainly there is this reality in which we pursue a level of control and money in order to avoid thinking we're in the storm. And that is true whether you have a lot of money or have no money. Right? That's the reality of it. We're always wanting these pieces. In order to avoid the very real reality that we're not on a beach vacation, but we're in the midst of a storm, and we need a storm shelter. Now, it's not just us that experience this reality. This, this uh, psalm, actually this section right here that we were just looking at, 11 and 12, about the, uh, the angels holding you up and not even your foot getting hit by a stone. You know this actually shows up in the New Testament. Everybody know where it shows up? Shows up in the temptation of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read this whole section 1 through 13. We'll get to it at the end here. But Jesus has just been baptized. Holy Spirit descends on him. Sky opens up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus immediately, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, in the book of Luke, we've talked about this before, but in the book of Luke and other places in the Gospels, wilderness is this place of great turmoil and also retreat to the Lord. Right? It's the same. Why why do you think the desert fathers and mothers went to the desert? The wilderness is this place to meet with the Lord, and yet also it's a place of difficulty. Refuge and difficulty where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Now, it's easy for us to assume in this that Jesus is doing this in his divine power. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and yet in his full humanity, he did not eat for 40 days. This is not Jesus being like, hey, that's great, but I have this little like card that I play that's like son of God card, like, I'm not hungry. No, no, no. no. He's hungry. 40 days is a long time. I I can't make it 40 minutes being hungry. I get hangry. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Provide for yourself. If you are who you say you are, come on, show up. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. This is the spot. 
and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. This place, this refuge place, this wilderness that Jesus is in is this place in which he is tempted by Satan. Now, there's a lot of ways we could go and look at all these other temptations, but this last one, Jesus responds by saying, you must not test the Lord. What Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is say, I'm going to prove that I'm the Son of God by jumping off of this temple. God will clearly save me because I am his son. Not his son just in the way in which all of humanity is sons and daughters of God, but in a special way, second person of the Trinity way. Prove it. Jesus says, I don't have to prove anything to you. How do we test the Lord in this way? I think sometimes we test the Lord by tying his goodness to certain circumstantial changes or things. Lord, we're in the midst of a storm. I need you to show up. Show up in this way, and I will serve you. Don't show up in that way, and you are not good. Don't show up in this way that I need you to show up, and you are no longer good. That's a testing of the Lord. We're tying His goodness to a change in our circumstances. Rather than saying, the circumstances surrounding us may be terrible, and yet you, Lord, are a shelter in the midst of it. Is he a shelter, or is he a vending machine? How do we see him? Now, you may be thinking, well, all right, I feel a lot of conviction now. I do all these things, but I'm not Jesus. What do you want me to do? Well, this is where Jesus shows up in the most incredible way. There's this incredible irony of this passage in Luke because of what comes next in the psalm. Look at this with me. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. This is back to Psalm 91. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. If Satan had just kept reading his Bible. This, friends, is the promise. Earlier in the psalm, he says, the promises of God are your armor and protection. This is the very promise that comes at the very beginning of all of the brokenness and sin in the world, in which God promises 
Satan, you are going to be crushed. This serpent, the curse that you are facing is you will be crushed and yet you will bruise the heel of the one who crushes you. Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him. And Jesus says, no, I will not put the Lord to the test because the Lord will use me to crush your head. To crush your head. If you find yourself thinking in the midst of this tension of life, in the midst of the storm, not relying on the Lord as your shelter, but running to all sorts of other places of safety, and you're like, oh my goodness, I am, woe is me. Look to the serpent crusher. If you have fallen in your temptation that Satan brings to you, look to the serpent crusher. Jesus actually does that obedience in your place. There's a reason he's there for 40 days. It represents the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. There's a reason he's in the wilderness. There's a reason he faces these specific temptations. He is doing exactly what Adam and Eve failed to do. Exactly what Israel failed to do. Exactly what you and I failed to do. Obeying the Lord in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of hardship, but he doesn't do it for himself. He does it for you. And not only does he do it for you there, he ultimately goes and crushes the serpent's head by being crushed himself on the cross. By going to the cross in your place, he removes all the penalty for sin, all of the stain upon you, all of the shame related to those things, all of the brokenness is beginning to be undone in Jesus bearing our sin on the cross so that Satan can come and tempt you. Satan can come and he can throw your own sin in your face and you can say to him, Satan, you have been crushed. My sin has been paid for in full. In full. You cannot touch me. Not only can you not touch me, not even a stone is going to hurt my foot. Not even a Lego is going to hurt my foot. Because Satan, you are powerless against me. You see this tension that the psalm has is the same tension that we live in now. Because that is true. Satan has been finally crushed by Jesus on the cross. And yet, as we saw all through the book of Revelation while we were in that, it, there's this already tension and this not yet tension. It's already fully done, yet we don't yet experience all of it. The old is passing away and the new has already come. But we're in the crossover between the new and the old. The old is dying. The new has already started. And we live in this tension point in between. So how do we survive the tension point in between? The psalmist goes on to tell us. 
The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. This section here of the psalm feels like it's the the psalm version of Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read this long section in Romans chapter 8 because I think we need, just need to hear it. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. You haven't even begun to show up yet. When Jesus comes back, He will reveal the glory that you have. Creation itself is waiting and groaning to see what you look like in glory. That's what this says. All of the natural disasters and brokenness that clearly showcases that this world is not right is these groanings waiting for you to show up when Jesus comes back and redeems you, resurrects you gives you a new, glorious resurrection body, then creation will really show up. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, and we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. That's the tension, right? We groan because life is hard and we're in the storm, even though we have the Spirit. Even though we have this new thing. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose for them. This is exactly what the psalm is saying. God is working all things together for your good according to His will. He's working all things together for your good, including the very hard and difficult things. And He does so not from a distance, Like, I'm going to work those terrible things out that you're experiencing for good. He does so from a closeness. I will be together with them. With them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory 
What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, including you, yourself. For God himself has given us right standing with him. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus had died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us. This is what the psalmist is saying when he says, I have made the Lord my refuge. And he only has the promise of the serpent crusher to lean on. We've seen the serpent crusher. We know the serpent crusher. We know how the story ends. We know how it's, how it's gone. We know where it's going. What can harm us? So what's the answer? Let's go to that hiding place. Not the beach house but the storm shelter, the Lord himself. Nothing can separate you from him. Nothing can ultimately destroy or harm you. Nothing can deter God from singing over you, from delighting in you, from loving you, from moving heaven and earth to come get you and redeem you. Go to that hiding place. But go to that hiding place in the midst of whatever you're dealing with. In the midst of your sin and your brokenness. In the midst of it. It's a hiding place. It's a refuge. We think that, what, that the psalmist is saying, the Lord is my refuge from this place of like great spiritual strength and growth. Like he's just always chill, Right? No, he's saying that from a place of turmoil. Go to the Lord as your hiding place in the midst of whatever turmoil you're facing, inner or outer. In the midst of pain, in the midst of doubts, fears, poverty, stress, anxiety, racial trauma, Childhood trauma, addiction, being attacked, 
being ignored, relational division, chronic pain and illness, cancer, unknown medical issues, the attacks of Satan. In all of them, go to the Lord in the midst of it, for he is your refuge. Go to the storm shelter, the hiding place, the Lord Jesus himself. God hasn't built a giant utopia on this planet in which his father, followers get to hide from the trouble of the world. No, he came into the world to be himself, that refuge and hiding place, and then granted us his grace in the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we together can be the temple, the hiding place, the refuge of the Lord. So let's go to him, our refuge. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing Psalm 91. So rather than us reciting it together as we have done uh, throughout the psalm series, we're going to sing it uh, together. Uh, so, so let me pray for us as we go into worship. Jesus, we need you to be our hiding place. For some of us, we're in a place where life is good right now. And we're wondering, do we need a shelter? God, would you remind us that we do? Because trouble will come. For some of us, we're in a place of really hard things. And we are saying, God, we need you to cover us like a bird covers her, her young. God, we need you to come and rescue us. We need you to put your armor and protection around us. From ourselves and from the world around us, we need your grace and protection over us. So Lord, we claim now the promises that you have said that nothing will separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that Jesus has crushed Satan. And Jesus, we are clinging to you and asking that you would come and that you would show us how to cling to you as our refuge and our hiding place. Would you come near to us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.